0: Don, feel really welcome this morning, Dr. Don Cox. Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. I serve as one of your regional missionaries. I work with churches basically from Rocky Mount, Franklin County, all the way over to Virginia Tech, up the 81 corridor to James Madison University, that area, and I work with about 75 to 80 churches. My wife and I have been married over 20 years, and we have two sons. One is a sophomore at Liberty University, so that's where my prayers and my money go, and so you can just be mindful of that as you pray for us. I have another son who's 16, he's a sophomore at Glenver High School, and I want to tell you what a joy and a privilege it is to be with you all. And I want to tell you, I have a great friendship with Jeff. Just the other day, I guess about, about a month ago, he said, Now, Brother Don, I realize that you believe in the Bible and our commitment to it. I said, Absolutely, I do. And he said, And I know that you want to speak freely, always, in public life and, and all around. I said, Absolutely. He said, I bet you I believe that you believe in free speech. And I said, absolutely, I do. He said, great, come give one. That's what he said. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Reminds me of a story about a fellow who ran a barber shop. And a rabbi went in one day and he got his hair cut. It was a very good haircut. And when he finished, he reached into his wallet, wanted to give the, pay the barber for his haircut. And the man said, no, sir, no, sir. It is my policy that all those in the clergy get a free haircut. So the next day when the barber showed up at his barbershop, there laying on the steps, on the outside, on the doorstep, was some Jewish bread. It was terrific. A couple days later, a Catholic priest came in, got his haircut. Same thing happened. Wanted to pay the fella, and the barber said, Oh, no, oh, no. It is my policy that the clergy always get a free haircut. So the next day when the barber showed up there on his steps... Was a beautiful bottle of wine. A few days later, a Baptist preacher went in there. Baptist preacher got his hair cut, turned out great. Reached into his pocket to pay the barber, and the barber said, Oh no, it is my policy. All those in the clergy get a free haircut. Barber showed up to his barbershop the very next day. You know what was sitting on his steps? 15 Baptist preachers looking for their free haircut. <laughs> You know what those Baptist preachers realized? You need to pass the word, especially when it's a good word. When it's a good word. That's really what the gospel is. It's a good word and we ought to pass it. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Matthew chapter 9. Will you turn there? Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Just two weeks ago, I went with my oldest son. His name is Tim. He's a sophomore at Liberty University and... We made a trip down to Georgia where we sang the song that we just sang a few moments ago, Good, Good Father. That song has only been released about two or three weeks. It was sung at the Passion Conference. I gathered with my son along with 40,000 college students that were there to worship and praise Jesus and to get involved in taking that good news to the world. Now, how how on earth to 40,000 college students show up just to sing and praise Jesus and to get involved because they passed the Word. That's why. They passed the Word. I wonder how much of the passing of the Word that we have done. I'm here to challenge you to do that, to get involved. You know what is also interesting about the Passion Conference movement, well over 20 years it's been meeting. Starting in 2009, they started to take up an offering among college students, to be involved in missions endeavors and missions involvement. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I went to college, I was PO, Not poor. I couldn't afford the other O or R. I was just PO. Since 2009, you know how much that college students have given to missions? 1.35 million dollars. That's college students. Many look toward the future and they say, what is happening in America? I'm here to tell you, God is moving among college students and other young adults. This church is a testimony of that. God is making a difference and they have realized, college students have, including my son, that it's not just the giving, but you need to get involved. Your church every week is involved in helping to sponsor missions You all give as a Southern Baptist church to what's called the Cooperative Program, which was invented years ago that allows churches big and small to be involved in supporting missions and taking the gospel to the world. Do you realize that your missions giving just in Virginia supports 12 staff like me that serve churches, the almost 700 churches that are part of our network, our family? It means that you're supporting 75 church planters and church plants all throughout Virginia and also including D.C. It means you're also supporting more than 4,000 missionaries on the international mission field, more than 2,000 missionaries in North America, and close to 7,000 seminary students and others that are preparing to take the gospel to the world. That's what you're involved in. In fact, it can be truly said that the sun never sets on Southern Baptist missions around the world, and you're involved in that. So I'm here, first of all, to tell you thank you. Since 1990, in some form, I've been involved in Southern Baptist missions and have been supported by churches like yours. And I'm here, first of all, to tell you thank you, but also to tell you That God doesn't just want you to give financially, he wants a stewardship of your life. He wants you to get involved and when you get involved, you will find that God's power will rest on your life in the most incredible way and it will change you forever. Because when you get involved, you're really doing what Jesus has commanded us and that's really where Matthew chapter 9 comes in. Matthew chapter 9, it says there, beginning in verse 35. Do you have it? Say, Amen. Amen. If you don't have it, say, Oh, me, and I'll give you a minute. All right, verse 35, and it says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, our God is a missionary God. Do you realize that Philippians 2 says Jesus came for us? He came from his throne in heaven a comfortable place where he was being worshipped, and came to this earth, God is a missionary God. And Jesus didn't just show that in principle. He showed that in reality. He went, the scripture says right here, throughout all kinds of cities and villages, towns and counties and communities, cities and countryside, large towns, small towns, east, west, north, and south. The Lord Jesus set us an example as we minister through our community. And in our state, in our nation, in our world, Jesus calls us to have a vision. To have his vision for the world. And he calls upon us to join him. You see, Jesus is at work. Many of you think about the world and you think that there's only negative going on. I want to tell you that Jesus' mission is going marching on. And Jesus wants us to join him. He wants us to join him in the harvest. That's really what he says here. He wants us to join him, but how do you do it? How do you, in your life, join Jesus in the harvest? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 36 tells us we need to see what Jesus sees. To join Jesus in the harvest, we have to see what Jesus sees. It says, when he saw the crowds. To join Jesus in the harvest involves seeing people the way Jesus saw people. Verse 36 tells us that Jesus saw the multitudes, but he didn't see nameless faces. He didn't just see a blob or a crowd. He looked at them and he truly saw them. I wonder if we're that way with the people around us. I wonder if we truly pay attention. Jesus saw. To see means to observe with your eyes, but it means more than that. It means paying attention in your mind and being touched. In your heart. He looked at the people. And he saw more than a crowd. He saw souls. He saw a multitude of souls. To join Jesus in the harvest. You have to begin to see people. For who they are. And with care. Sometimes we don't do that. It's kind of like when I was driving down the road from Salem. Down here to Rocky Mount. I've made this trip many, many times. In fact, just... uh, at this particular time in my life, I'm serving as the interim pastor at Boones Mill Baptist, not far from here. And I've driven this road many, many times. And driving down the road, sometimes you'll see those tractor trailers. You know, the ones that zoom by you, you know, don't pay any attention to you. Sometimes on the side of those trucks, it'll say something like this If you can't see me, I can't see you. They're talking about their blind spot. We all have them when we're driving. But you know what? We also have them in life. Sometimes we don't see people around us who are needy and who are lost without Jesus because we have a blind spot. We don't even think about it. But we must be very careful that the needy and lost are everywhere around us. It was true in Jesus' day. It's even more true today. And we can't reach them if we don't see them. Several years ago, I I got some very bad news. Any of you who are above the age of, of 40 have probably gotten this news. You've gone to the doctor, and they put that chart up on the wall, and they ask you to read it, and they say, well, it's only downhill from here. That's what he said to me. I said, listen, doc, I haven't paid you yet. I mean, really. He said, your vision as you get older is just going to get worse, not going to get any better. For some of us, we've already struggled with that kind of issue. I wear contact lenses, these little pieces of plastic in my eye allow me to read what's in front of me and allow me to see you. But you know what's interesting? All of us, over time, we can develop condition where we might be able to see very well up close but struggle to see at a distance. Isn't that true? It's called nearsightedness. Some see better at a distance than they do up close. Now, what's true physically is all true, also true spiritually. Because some people say, well, missions and evangelism and reaching the world, that's for those people way over there. They're spiritually farsighted, but they don't really think about their next-door neighbor or their coworker or their classmate. We can't be spiritually farsighted. We also can't be spiritually nearsighted. Those that say, well, you know, if we love Jesus, we need to love those near home best. And let someone else worry about those afar off. We can't be neither. Jesus encourages neither spiritual sightedness nor nearsightedness. It says he saw the crowds. But how did he see them? It says that he saw them with compassion. You see, to join Jesus in the harvest, we have to see what Jesus sees. But we also have to care like Jesus cares. That's what he says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd compassion is the sympathetic consciousness of another person's distress together with a desire to alleviate it it's it's not saying oh it's terrible what people are struggling with it's terrible that some people around do not know the true story of jesus and the difference that it makes It's not just thinking that, it's also wanting to do something about it. That's what Jesus encourages us to do, to have compassion, to not just look and say, oh, it stinks what they must be going through. It says that we need to do something about it. That's why Jesus has put us on this earth. You see, we in America sometimes, we're not aware of the need or we turn a deaf ear to it. Sometimes we we don't care like Jesus cares because we're not aware of the need. There are a little more than 7 billion people in the world. 1.27 billion of them, people that study these things tell us, 1.27 billion at this moment have no access to what you have access to, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1.27 billion. 1.27 billion. That means there are over a billion people that will be born, will live their lives, perhaps have a family, give birth to other little humans, die and be taken from this earth and never hear a clear presentation of Jesus. For me, I think that's horrible. And unfair, and we ought to do something about it. 1.27 billion. You know what that means? That means if you were to begin counting on the day that I was born. 48 years ago. And we're counting one number per second. You would not have reached 1.27 billion. By the time you've got here this morning. We ought to do something about that. It means that if I were to take you. And were to take you in a perfectly good airplane. And throw you out of it with a parachute on your back. Throw you out of that airplane and you were to land in certain places in this world you could land with your parachute pack up your chute begin to walk and you could walk for days weeks months and not find one church one christian gospel preaching church or one christian There are some places in the world where where that's true now sometimes we don't care about that because we don't know well now you do sometimes we don't care because we turn a deaf ear to it it's kind of like a One of those tear-jerking commercials that comes on television. We want to change the channel. Please don't change the channel. Understand that Jesus wants you to make a difference in the world. You see, when people die without a relationship with Jesus, they don't float around in outer space. They don't become angels. They don't walk around in their happy place. They go to a terrible place. The Bible calls it hell. There was once a new missionary that arrived in Calcutta, India and he was picked up at the airport and as they were driving down the road, he was picked up by a veteran missionary and the, the brand new missionary, as he looked on the streets and the needs of the people, he began to weep. The older missionary said, well, after you've been here a while, you'll, you'll get used to it and you'll stop crying. The new missionary said, that's... Exactly what I'm afraid of, and that's really why I'm crying because I hope that never happens to me. Sometimes we don't care because we don't know. Sometimes we don't care because we turn a deaf ear to it, but you know, we care. Why? Because Jesus cares. We care because it is not a decision we make, it's a response to his compassion. We love others because Jesus loved us first. Jesus saw the crowds. We need to see what Jesus sees. He had compassion on the crowds. We need to care like Jesus cared because people are harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. But another way that Jesus calls upon us to join him in the harvest is we need to pray like Jesus asked us to. Notice what he says. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, this is the only place that we find in the Bible that Jesus offers a prayer request. It's the only place where Jesus says, will you please pray? And he doesn't pray, doesn't ask for us to pray just for lost and those that are needy. He asks us to pray for laborers. Why? First of all, he says, because the harvest is plentiful. There's a tremendous opportunity that we have in the world today because of technology, because of the ability to travel, because of the heart for the world that the Christian church in the world is beginning to gather, because of passports, because of technology and many other ways. It is possible, it is conceivable that we could reach to the most remote parts of the world and a harvest is taking place even right now. I told you about those college students that gathered in Atlanta, Georgia, 40,000 of them. It was sold out for three months before college students ever arrived. A harvest is taking place. I'm not sure if you realize or not, because of our Southern Baptist network around the world, there were 24,000 new churches that were planted just last year. Over 300,000 new believers baptized around the world because of your support. A harvest is taking place. Sometimes we don't realize it. We see the news and we think just terrible things are happening, but there's great news. Here in Virginia, in our network, our family of churches, the 16 largest churches that are a part of our family, half of them were started, were planted in the last 15 years. They're brand new. That's what God is doing. Just one of the churches that I work with in the valley... Just a few months ago, baptized 76 people in six weeks. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Many times we don't think that. We think, oh, there's just bad news going on. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is bringing a harvest of souls all around the world. We talked earlier about the persecuted church. I told you about 1.27 billion in the world don't have access to Jesus. We ought to also continue to pray as your pastor led you for the more than 2 billion that do have access to Jesus, but are in countries where they're persecuted for their faith. Close to half of the world either has no access to the gospel, or they're persecuted because of the gospel. We need to have a heart for the world like Jesus has a heart for the world. The harvest is plentiful. There is an incredible harvest going on right now. But Jesus says we need to pray. Why? Because the laborers are few. The laborers are few. That's the sad part of the story. Southern Baptists are some of the most active missionary Christians in the world. But I'm here to tell you that with more than 4,000 missionaries internationally, I think that's wonderful. But you know, that's not 10% of our population of our churches. Brother Lee, it's not 5%. It's not 1%. It's 0.25% of our numbers that are willing to go. The laborers are few. And I'm here to tell you other bad news. Because of the lack of support of missionaries just a few months ago, many of you might have read that 600 of our missionaries, Southern Baptist missionaries, one of the most evangelistic denominations in all the world, 600 of our missionaries are going to have to come home because we no longer have the funds to support them. Jesus says right here, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Oh, how true that is. Southern Baptists do many wonderful things, and so do you. But please understand that Carl F.H. Henry was right when he said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time, Today we see evidence that God is stirring hearts. A, a new generation, a younger generation has interest in going to the ends of the earth, giving their lives to reach the most corners of the world. But the sad fact that is so distressing to me is that there are now far more people who are willing to go than there are resources to send them. God must not only stir those who are willing to go. And I pray that God would do that today. As I was sitting on the second row, that's exactly what I was praying. Oh, God, would you call out your people? Will you maybe this morning call out somebody to say, I'll go, I will go. I pray that that will happen. But even beyond that, I pray that God would stir our hearts and we would support those that can go while we are waiting for our turn to go. You see, God must stir not just the hearts of those that are willing to go, but also those who are willing to support them financially. For the hearts of moms and dads, grandparents, that will pray and support and be willing to send their children and grandchildren that they might go. That's what I pray for my kids. Oh, they give their lives for the gospel mission. See, Jesus says he wants us to pray, and you know prayer changes things. Do you believe that? I do. I can tell you story after story. Let me give you one from history. Back in the 1850s, there was a a group of churches in New York City called the Dutch Reformed Church. New York City had been hit with a great panic in the stock market and because of that the wealth and resources of many people had vanished into thin air masses massive numbers of people were unemployed factories were closed banks failed railroads and other businesses went into bankruptcy sound kind of familiar doesn't it? at the same time the Dutch reformed church they were concerned that their church in lower Manhattan was losing membership and as people were moving out of the area to find a To find jobs, it was in that context that they employed a layman. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. And his job was to knock on doors and invite people to the church. That was his job. So he said, To himself, The very first thing that I need is I need the power of God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite people to a prayer meeting. And that's exactly what he desired to do. He sent out flyers inviting people, inviting people to this Wednesday prayer meeting, desiring that they would meet once a week or so and that they would pray that God would pour out his gospel upon people that they might be saved. This flyer gave out more details, invited people all to come. And so on September the... 23rd, 1857, he opened the doors of the church and he waited for five minutes. He began to pace, Brother Jeff, wondering if anybody would show. Ten minutes came and went. Fifteen minutes and finally the first person showed up. They were soon followed by a few others. And six people met that very first time on September the 23rd of 1857. He said they prayed for an hour and the very next week, they met again. There were 40 people. They decided, because of the growth of the group, that they would meet daily. And within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen praying for the future of America. And in the next 18 months, one million people in America were added and baptized, added to the roles of Christian churches around America because of one fella. Saying we need to pray. I wonder what would happen if we did that. If we would do what Jesus said. He said pray earnestly. The word means fervent. The word comes from the Greek word ektenos, Which means to stretch out. It means to really pour our hearts out to God. He says pray earnestly. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful. And the laborers Are few. Every Christian is asked to pray. Every Christian can be the answer to that prayer. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? Usually we pray to Jesus and He is the answer to our prayer. Here is Jesus asking us to pray and we can also be the answer to that prayer. That's what He is calling upon us. You see, joining Jesus in the harvest means we need to see what Jesus sees. We need to care like Jesus cares. We need to pray like Jesus asked us to, but you know, anybody who's ever had a garden or farmed any land knows that when a harvest comes, there's something else that needs to be done. To join Jesus in the harvest, you need to go like Jesus commanded. He said, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know what he's implying? It's time for us to go. It's wonderful to give, but it's time for us to go. It almost mirrors what Isaiah 6 says when the call goes out and it is overheard by Isaiah. And Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm wondering, Jesus is calling. I wonder how many of us will say, Here am I, Lord, send me. You see, Jesus gave us an obligation, a command to go. He says it in Matthew 28 when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what he says in Matthew 28. He says the same thing in Mark chapter 16 verse 15. He says go into all the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel to all creation. He says the same thing in Luke 24. He says the same thing in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When he says you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit is to come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has laid out the command that we go. We ought to give. We should give. But the main thing we need to give is ourselves. And Jesus says that we should pray. You need to pray asking God. God, send laborers into the harvest. Your harvest is out there, Lord. Send laborers. We need to pray that. And I hope we'll pray that beginning today and all days. But we also ought to be willing to go. That's what Jesus' followers did. They went. You see, there are no more remote places in the world that we cannot reach anymore. They're all available to us. It is a divine opportunity that God has laid before us. We also ought to give. What a shame if we have the resources to reach the world in our back pocket or our accounts or in our assets and our gathering of property. If we have all those things but yet are unwilling to give them that the world might be reached. I wonder if we have a heart for God at all. Oswald Smith put it this way. He was very blunt, and I apologize, but here's what he said. He said, if God wills the evangelization of the world, and you refuse to support missions, then you are opposed to the will of God. I'm just the messenger boy here, all right? Because it applies to me. It applies to you. It applies to all of us. We need to have a heart for the world like Jesus did. William Carey was a missionary many years ago. In fact, he's considered the father of the modern missionary movement. In the 1790s, he was called to go to places that others could not go with compassion and love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he told those who could not go, who were not able to go, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold the ropes, to hold the ropes in support I wonder if we've held the ropes all that well if it means that Southern Baptists have to, had to call home missionaries who were out there serving. You see the Henry Martin put it this way. The spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. The closer you get to God, the more that good news you want to share. You see... World missions is God's work in our worship. John Piper put it this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to, bring, to the nations, bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Missions begins and ends in worship. To that I would say, amen. To join Jesus in the harvest, he wants us to see... What he sees. He wants us to care like he cares. He wants us to pray like he asked us to. And ultimately, he wants us to go like he has commanded us to. If all this be true, if what I've said to you this morning is true, let me ask you some questions for you to consider. If all this is true, would you be willing to pray regularly? For the salvation of the nations. Would you make a part of your regular prayer time to God. That you would pray for the the nations of the world. That they might come to him. Would you be willing to pray for your children and grandchildren. That God would call them to be heroes. Missionaries. I call them heroes. Would you be willing to set up a mission savings account for your children and grandchildren so if God calls upon them to go that you can help support it because God has blessed you? Would you be willing to do that? Do you have the work of the Lord in your will? Now I'm really meddling, aren't I? We should not think that in our last will and testament that we're just going to pass it on to those that come after us, we ought to put the Lord's work in our will. Are you a generous, maybe even sacrificial, in your giving to the Lord's work? Have you gone on a short-term mission trip so that others might hear of the gospel and you might see what God's doing in the world? What great opportunities that you have. Several years ago, there was an elderly man who passed away while sitting in his parked car in the city of Melbourne, Australia. Passed away while he was sitting in his car right on the street. He remained there several days before his body was found and identified by city officials. However, after the man's death and two days before the discovery of his body, a police officer put on the Windshield of that car, a parking ticket. True story. Later on, the mayor of the city said, it is so sad for the family and we extend our sincere sympathies to them. It was simply a case of the police officer not noticing. I wonder with all the needy and hurting and lost around us, could it be said of us that we just don't notice? I pray that we will join Jesus in the harvest. Let me hasten to say that what motivates us to do missions, to do exactly what I'm talking about here, to take the gospel to others, to reach out to those who are needy, with a view towards sharing the good news of Jesus with them, What motivates us is not guilt. It's not someone telling stories to us that make a tear come to our eye and a lump that comes to our throat. What should motivate us is the fact that God loved us enough in our sinful state, in our sinful condition. And I, of all of you, as the chief of sinners, can say by personal testimony... That without Jesus, I'd be lost and without hope and without help. But it is out of the gratitude of my heart toward a God who loves me and who sent Jesus for me to die for my sins and three days later to arise out of that empty tomb that I know not only of God's love, but also of God's power. And I want to dedicate my life to the sharing of that love and of that power with others. So what motivates us? is the fact that God loved us first and displayed that clearly in Jesus and what he did. So you might be sitting here this morning and you might be thinking, well, why should I go? Why should I give? Why should I steward my lifetime energy? You should do it because Jesus loves you. He cares for you and he showed you that in Jesus And maybe today, you're the one that needs to come. Maybe you're the one that needs to say, Jesus, I know about you. I know about your message. It's been repeated. But maybe today is the day when that becomes personal. Because ultimately, this passage is about making the truth of Jesus personal. That we might reach out to others. But we must come to Jesus first before we can ever go. We must give ourselves to Jesus first before we can ever give ourselves to anyone else. I'm wondering if there's someone today that needs to do that. Maybe someone today that you've, you've embraced Jesus and you have faith in Him and you've been saved and your life has been changed. You know it. But yet you have not gotten involved and maybe today is the day when you say that not only does Jesus have your wallet, He has your life. And maybe today can be the day when you give it all to Him. Your life will never be the same, I promise, in a good way. Will you pray with me? God, we are mindful that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And we would be remiss if we didn't confess our own need for your continual forgiveness and love. Lord, we realize that around us are many who are needy. Many who are lost. Some that you can allow us to be a part of reaching them. and Giving that others might go to other places that we can't go. But Lord, you'd made possible for others. Maybe today will be that special day when you call upon us to get personally involved. May you give us a heart for the world like Jesus asked. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.